0: Welcome to the Berkeley Technology
1: Law Podcast.
0: Hi, everyone. This is Gayathri, your host for the day from the Berkeley Tech Law Journal. Today's episode is on an immensely exciting and polarizing topic, which is further made so by our two expert guests who have kindly obliged our request to answer a few questions on the same. While preparing for this episode, we came across an article, which in an attempt to create discourse on the impact of artificial intelligence in the entertainment industry, asked ChatGPT for its thoughts on this, and it readily came up with a scary set of answers, and that is exactly what we are focusing on today. On July 14th, members of the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, often known as SAG-AFTRA, a labor union that represents over 160,000 media professionals, began a strike intended to raise demands of various advancements that were required within the media and entertainment sector. However, the main point of contention was the extent and manner in which artificial intelligence shall be implemented in the entertainment industry. This is especially significant to talk about now, because although the strike was officially declared over in November, after an acceptable agreement was finalised by the union and the studios, the issue was only truly resolved very recently when the union members, comprising of your favourite actors, singers and other artists, voted to ratify it with a 78% majority, which is indicative of some revolutionary changes to come. We have two accomplished guest speakers with us to give us their nuanced perspectives on the many angles of the strike and its outcome. Our first guest is Dan Jasno, who is a partner at Aaron Fox Schiff and the co-leader of the firm's AI, Metaverse and Blockchain Industry Group. Dan has been at the forefront of the AI and metaverse space and has also helped Aaron Schiff become the first major law firm to open an office in the metaverse. And later, we will be hearing from Stefano Defray, an actor, director and producer best known for the documentaries The Girl Who Cannot Speak and The Day I Had to Grow Up. Stefano has had roles on various CBS shows such as Blue Bloods and Law and Order Criminal Intent and his films have been screened at multiple film festivals including the Cannes Film Festival and the Chelsea Film Festival. His interview coincidentally happened two days before the decision to end the strike was made, which makes the conversation with him even more illuminating in the context of what may be expected through this voting period. So without further ado, let's hear what our guests have to say.
1: Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for talking to us today. It's great to have you join us on the BTLJ podcast. Uh, I'm very excited to speak with you and I'm sure our listeners are curious to hear the legal perspective on generative AI and the issues and opportunities it brings to the entertainment space. So to start things off, Can you share a bit about your work and experience with generative AI so far? Sure. Yeah.
2: And thank you for having me today. It's great to be with you um, and to be a part of this podcast. So I'm a partner at Aaron Fox Schiff uh, based in New York, and my background is in intellectual property, primarily trademark and copyright, as well as advertising, unfair competition laws, uh, marketing related work. So, those two issue areas led me into generative AI practice. I do also a lot of emerging tech um, guidance and advising. So, you know, we, we advise a lot of clients who are considering incorporating generative AI into various parts of their business or their creative process. They might come to us and say, hey, you know, we wanna do this, or this is already happening amongst our employees. What are the regulatory issues that we should be aware of? Um, what can we do to mitigate potential risks? Um, what are the risks? And really help them think through um, how to balance the the opportunities of generative AI with some of the, the notable risks associated with its use.
1: Yeah, for sure. and. Um... Like, given that it's such a hot topic among IP lawyers right now, especially those involved in the SAG-AFTRA deal negotiations, how are people in the entertainment and IP law space grappling with generative AI? How are you guys thinking about this
2: right now? Yeah, that's a really good question. I You know, I think everybody is sort of in the same boat. Um, everybody is trying to figure out what the, what the parameters are going to look like long term for both. Uh, responsible and uh, responsible use, ethical use, um, and you know how the you know certain sets of laws are going to adjust or develop in order to um, ensure that pe- that companies or individuals intellectual property rights are protected uh, in this new context. So you know there are a lot of open questions about. Um, copyright law, the extent to which copyright is going to protect works that are created using generative AI. Uh, there are a lot of questions about the um, adequacy of the pub- publicity rights uh, regime at the state level and whether there needs to be a federal response that you know adds to the state protections. And a lot of those questions are still unanswered. I think the 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 guilds, SAG-AFTRA, um, writers and, and um, directors guilds, and the studios have you know should be commended for wrestling with these issues, um, you know, so publicly and so early in this, you know, all of our collective understandings of the implications of generative AI. And I think they, you know, these these agreements are really going to potentially, I think, go a long way to helping you know, various industries start to think about how to how to put in place parameters for responsible use.
1: Yeah, I mean, since you mentioned uh, copyright and publicity rights, um, I just want to quickly ask, so like in this sort of new age of deepfake synthetic media and whatever else generative AI can can do in this realm, like what's the biggest challenge that you think that this poses to copyright? Or portrait rights or publicity rights, and are there any sort of current major legal solutions that people are proposing?
2: Yeah, I, I think the biggest tension right now is that the the U.S. Copyright Office has taken the position that uh, copyright does not protect um, works generated solely by generative AI, and that you know that makes sense in a certain context, right? It might make sense if you just go to Journey and you say, "Hey, create." A photo of an elephant surfing a wave. Um, and then, you know, Mid Journey creates it, and all you do is prompt it with one little sentence, and that's sort of the end of story. It might make sense for that not to be protected by copyright. But what we've seen is much more sophisticated creative processes by artists, by graphic novelists, um, where they're not just using generative AI and sort of this one and done kind of way. They're really, they're, engaging in, you know, really methodical, um, sophisticated prompts of gen AI in order to create new works that maybe, you know, where the generative AI tool is just the lens through which they are creating something new. Uh, The Zarya of the Dawn graphic novel is the classic, you know, example of this so far, where, you know, this artist is spending thousands of hours prompting a generative AI tool, you know, iterating and iterating and iterating and iterating, trying to get exactly what she wants, um, and taking the tool from you know one very unsophisticated image to very sophisticated outputs that sh- that align with her vision. And the copyright office so far has said, well, that that doesn't count as human authorship. So you know, that's that has positives and negatives. We we may not want, as a matter of policy, a lot of generative AI works that are protectable under copyright. But, but I think, you know, from my perspective, it does a disservice to the artists, to the creators who are using these tools in a way that's really, um, that's really unique and that very much reflects their vision as creators and artists. And, you know, right now the copyright office isn't sort of rewarding them for that creative effort and output. Um, so that's a big tension, and then, you know, the risk of in the publicity context, the risk of unauthorized uh, synthetic content or unauthorized use of somebody's name, voice for musicians, likenesses. Um, that's a that's a substantial risk. Uh, it makes it these tools make it very easy to engage in that type of uh, both very real looking. Um, um, type of activity, and also, you know, potentially use unauthorized performances, etc., that could um, really undermine artists, actors, rights uh, over the long term. So, you know, but we also, we have, as you probably know, a patchwork of state publicity laws. Um, there's no federal right of publicity. And that just makes it even more difficult for um, actors, anybody with a, a economically valuable set of publicity rights to enforce those rights um, and ensure that they're stopping unauthorized uses.
0: Yeah, it's very
1: interesting. Um, so in your opinion, should the use of an actor's likeness in generative AI content be considered an infringement of publicity rights? And do you think that this might require further revisions of whether state or federal publicity rights law.
2: So I certainly think that the unauthorized display of a digital performance um, is a violation of publicity rights. So um, let's say you know, a movie studio creates a likeness of Tom Cruise and then deploys that in Mission Impossible 15, and uh, doesn't get permission from Tom Cruise to do that, I think everybody would agree that that's a violation of publicity rights. Um, You know, where it gets a little trickier is uh, whether or not there's a violation of publicity rights if you're using somebody's name, image, and likeness to train a machine learning model. So say you put a whole bunch of these performances into a data set that then trains uh, the machine learning model, that sort of gets to the same point that's being debated a lot under copyright law about whether the unauthorized use of third-party works to train a machine learning model is copyright infringement or fair use. So same question applies for publicity rights. Um, And that's not necessarily clear. Um, I think, you know, if you're an actor, maybe you want to know if your performance is being used to train a model. And then it's possible that that performance could Generate an identical replica of that perf- of that actor, right? So, if Tom Cruise's likeness has been used to train a machine learning model, then you, as a user, could go to um, you know any of these tools and say, "Hey, create a you know um, new movie trailer using Tom Cruise about you know whatever movie you you want to make up in your head." So, there's a risk there, but that you know there's an open question about whether just the use of NIL rights in, to train a model is actually infringing. I don't think there's much question that the unauthorized display of that type of performance would be infringing.
1: Right. Certainly. As AI generated content advances, what adjustment would you like to see made to existing copyright laws to protect the interests of human creators?
2: You know, I, I think I think that the copyright office is going to have to reevaluate the way it's currently applying copyright law um, to these AI-generated works. It's not enough to just say, um, you know, nothing created using gen AI is subject to copyright protection. It that might be the easier path, but I think in the long run, there's going to have to be a case-by-case analysis, just as we do for fair use in copyright law, to say, you know, was there sufficient human authorship in the process of creation for this specific work. Um, The Copyright Office already acknowledges that you might be able to substantially modify a work that was created by generative AI to sort of give rise to human authorship, right? So um, something's created by gen AI, then you, you know, tweak it a whole bunch, you modify it, you do, you know, whatever, then you might be able to protect it. So the Copyright Office has already, you know, acknowledged that, that that's possible. But they really need to, I think, reevaluate um, the opposite scenario where somebody is sitting in front of a computer. They're prompting these tools over and over and over again. Uh, maybe they're not modifying the output, but their creation process is so involved, it's so directed um, that you know there there needs to be a recognition that there's human authorship in the direction of that generative AI tool so that that I think needs to change for sure I just don't think it's a sustainable analysis at the moment and I think as um all types of different creators whether they're you know studios or individual artists graphic novelists musicians as they as they incorporate these types of tools um into their creative processes their um they're going to, there, there needs to be some sort of recognition that, you know, these tools are not just a machine, they are directed by, you know, a human author for now.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I want to talk a bit more specifically about sac and the other guilds that have been on strike recently. So before the general ratification votes were held, the Writers and Directors Guild of America National Board unanimously voted to approve the agreements. Where on the other hand, fourteen percent of the SAC aftra National Board voted against the proposed contract. Why do you think there was a difference between the guilds' reactions to their agreements? It's
2: hard to know for sure, but you know, yeah. I, from just the public reporting, it does seem like there's concern about the generative AI provisions. Um, you know, it's it's a particularly I mean, it's sensitive for all of the guilds, but I think, you know, there's a lot of concern um, among the actors that there's potential for, uh, particularly, you know, as Fran Drescher talks about journeyman actors to, you know, lose access to roles, to have their opportunities diminished, um, and to, um, you know, for generative AI to... um, really depressed compensation for the acting community. I think those are all, you know, clearly valid concerns. I, I think the SAG-AFTRA agreement, you know, at least from what we know of the summaries does a good job of striking that balance uh, between preserving the promise of generative AI and offering some meaningful protections to actors, um, you know, this technology is here to stay, right? Generative AI is soon, if not already ubiquitous. It's incorporated into, you know, all of the tools or it's going to be incorporated into all the tools we use all the time from Microsoft Office Suite to, you know, Google Workspace. Um, And obviously it has much more sophisticated uh, uh, implementations. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think what's important is to be uh, protecting those the actors, writers, directors who are going to be most directly affected and to recognize that, you know, their publicity rights, their name, image, likeness rights um, are theirs to profit from and to license out. And that it should ultimately be the actor's call about, you know, how those rights are put to use Um in any of these projects and i think i think the you know at least based on the summary language the sag after agreement does a pretty good job of of providing a framework for that may not be perfect but um you know as i mentioned at the outset you know we're at the early stages of this and you know this is a hard job to negotiate these types of issues when you know we're still so early on in understanding how generative ai is going to affect you know, the economy as, as a whole. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been very impressed by, um, you know, how all of the guilds in the studios have, have um, worked through these issues.
1: Yeah, definitely. And do you think generative AI issues might put the actors' guild in a more precarious position? Because, like you said, actors would face a more existential crisis if they lose their digital portrait and publicity rights.
2: You know, my perspective is that generative AI offers tremendous um, opportunities for actors. You know, I think um, there, the notion that an actor might be able to create a generative AI, you know, face scan or performance, and then license that out to, say you know, an advertising agency, um, to have the advertising agency create commercials of that actor without the actor having to be, you know, on set or in a particular location. And you could think about that, you know, what about athlete endorsement deals and, um, and actors, um, who, you know, might be going through some sort of health issue, like, you know, Bruce Willis is aphasia, um, and is, you know, losing his ability to talk, you know, all of these tools offer tremendous potential for actors to really commercialize their NIL rights in a way that they never have before. Obviously, we've had CGI, but we've never had anything that's as sophisticated as this. Um, similarly, with post-production, you know, an actor, you know, way after filming, you um, you know, instead of having to fly back to a studio in order to uh, reshoot a scene, might be able to consent to the use of a Gen AI likeness in order to do that so they can be off with family or they can be on a different project. Um, and those are all, I think, great opportunities for actors. Um, it really opens up a whole new potential revenue stream, including post mortem. Um, which is a big area of publicity rights law where, you know, states grant various uh, uh, terms of postmortem publicity rights. You know, the family members, uh, loved ones can continue to generate revenue streams um, for years after, you know, somebody potentially passes away. And that's, I think, you know, a great opportunity. It's potential security for a lot of these people um, um, over potentially, you know, another generation. So I think that's a great opportunity. It, it, of course, has, you know, potential to be abused. There's potential for unauthorized use. There's infringement. But those issues are issues we deal with all the time in every type of, of intellectual property, right? You, you're always fighting trademark infringement. You're always fighting copyright infringement. And, you know, what's important is to have a system in place that ensures that the people who are the owners of those rights or the holders of those rights are being notified of their use. They're being adequately compensated for their use. Um, and, um, you know, they ultimately are able to control how those rights are used. Um, so, you know, I think again, it's a balance here between trying to take advantage of these opportunities that Gen AI presents uh, while, while, establishing some safeguards that will, um, you know, prevent unauthorized use, make sure that the rights owners are the ones who are benefiting and have ultimate say. Um, And I think the agreements are all, you know, so far have done a pretty good job of threading that needle.
1: Yeah, for sure. In your opinion, how might the relationship between talents like actors, writers, directors and studios producers change with the advancement in AI generated content?
2: Um, that's a good question. You know, I think it's, it's going to, I think it remains to be seen, right? I mean, we're, we're still waiting to see how these new three agreements, the directors, writers, and actors agreements will actually be implemented. There are a lot of details that are missing, um, in, you know, particularly in the SAG-AFTRA agreement. We haven't seen the actual language. What, you know, what I think is striking in the SAG-AFTRA agreement is how, even more important individual contracts are going to be, you know, the, the studios are required to provide, you know, a clear description of how they intend to use an actor's digital replica or a synthetic performance. Um, actors are required to, you know, if they want to deny rights to a studio to use their digital performance, uh, posthumously, they have to explicitly uh, hold back those rights and, you know, to me looking at that, there's the potential for a lot of litigation around those issues because, you know, if a studio has to clearly describe the nature of its proposed use of a digital performance, you know, what happens when that use varies a little bit or there's a disagreement about the actual use, the implementation of that right differs from how it was described in the contract. And then, you know, you have all sorts of questions about royalties and you know, payment, compensation. So, you know, it's certainly another area where there could be strife between the actors, writers, directors, and the studios. Um, But, you know, again, that's not necessarily different than than anything else. We're going to, you know, we we deal with those issues all the time. Um, You know, I would hope that there might be, ideally this is, you know, it's not a, zero sum, right? That this technology potentially grows the pie, you know, and everybody gets a bigger slice. I think that's sort of, you know, what what the hope would be, but that might be a little bit, you know, too optimistic.
1: Great. Well, that's all we have. Thank you so much, Dan, for taking the time to speak with us. I'm sure our listeners will learn a lot from your expertise and insights. So thank you again. My pleasure.
2: Thanks, guys.
0: Let's now hear from our second guest, Stefano Dufresne.
1: Welcome, Stefano. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. It's absolutely wonderful to have you join us on the BTLJ podcast. Uh, I'm very excited to speak with you about generative AI and the challenges it poses for actors, writers, uh, and directors. So to start things off, can you share any personal experiences where generative AI has directly impacted your work, either in front of the camera or
3: behind the scenes? Well, first of all, I'm really glad to join you guys. Thank you for having me as a guest on your show. Um, You know, it's the elephant in the room, right? AI is a fundamental... Conversation piece, negotiating piece. Uh, it was part of the, the the writers' strike, the WGA, that was just um, basically come to settlement terms, and now still ongoing with the actor's strike. So uh, we have been on strike since the twelfth of July, I believe. So we're going on to about um, you know it's it's going to be almost half a year, and it's it's a it's it's the the talking point and the, the the challenges in the room so we see the aspects of AI and generative AI in post-production directors have already had to deal with this and I've, I've personally had to deal with this before in in post um, for example in the film that I'm working on uh, called stolen dough which is a feature film um, and this. Film basically, if, if you're in a coloring session, you can look at colors to try to match, uh, and you don't need a colorist to to be able to match a specific shot that came from from one scene to another. In other words, you could have generative AI put in the um, the location and the look of the shot to see what. Uh, tones, texture, lighting fixtures that you have, and then you would be able to sort of replicate that all the way through. In theory, the reality is it's it's not advanced yet to the level that it actually works precisely in the way that you would want to have a human colorist do detailed work on uh, on on that aspect. But that's that seems to be very normal. That seems to be very normal f- for us in the sense of moving forward post production. Now, lots of people in post will be losing their jobs. The the, the the that's the challenges, right? So how do we use a tool to advance things to be done? Uh, in, in, you know, whatever the word better is, how do we use it to 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 make things more efficient, but uh, not take advantage of the labor that we have, because as you know, that filmmaking is extremely labor, labor intensive. Um, In terms of the actors, I'll just say this and you can ask me some other questions subsequently, but I'll just wanna enter in talking about the actors very quickly. Um, You know, the way that the the, the studios have positioned asking actors and and propositioning them with generative AI, if they needed to place you in a scene, they would be using your likeness, whether you're uh, speaking or not, and pay you for the contract of that one day, but then they would be able to use you throughout the season without paying you for coming into work. If you lose your likeness, the thing that you bring as a human being, you essentially lose your standard of living. The whole purpose of you know being an actor is that you are actually the person who is delivering those lines. That's why we find it so, uh, susceptible in political discourse with a lot of deep fakes that YouTube is around. So all these aspects, you know, without without going into too much detail into your first question, all of these are uh, a, a very big challenge for the film industry and for the 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 actors that are performing in those films. Yeah, certainly.
1: So, apart from just post production, are there any sort of current projects that you're working on, or that you know of, that generative AI has already started to affect other parts, like the writers' room, or other parts of, like you mentioned, acting and the sort of pre-production aspect of it?
3: So, l- l- let's talk a little bit about about you know what the value is of what the value is of 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 ai if you input um scripts inside that are that are shitty you're it's going to learn on shitty material if you put on things that are very strong it's going to learn on things that are strong it gets smarter and learns on its own material and so the 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 the, the the fear that a lot of the writers had and that they had worked into their contracts, this is part of the settlement, is that it would not be used, their scripts, their stories that they were written by humans would not be entered into the generative AI writing programs so that they would able to use their scripts as a basis to learn independently um, on their own. And this is a massive uh, challenge, right? Because you, you, the people that are that are software engineers and people that are that are at the forefront of technology, want to input the most amount of intelligent data, so that the the it's generating better data. Um, but who owns that data, the copyright of that that data is fundamental. It, it's not so clear that the AI has the right to borrow specific artistic materials to learn from. So I think that's another argument that many of the unions are talking about from the writing perspective. From the acting perspective, it's much more clear cut, right? I know what my face looks like. I'm with you guys. I don't know if you can see me. I'm wearing an Aviator Nations hoodie. I've got blonde hair, blue eyes my face has a specific a specific kind of uh you know symmetry to it and it's very uh clear how it would be able to mathematically project the same image and be able to take it from a photograph or from a strip of film and to put it into another uh scene so this is this is the challenge right who's you know whose material are we putting in so that this machine can learn is part of the more insidious parts of, 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 of artificial intelligence.
1: Certainly, yeah. And, and to your point, Stefano, I think I would just like to give our listeners a bit of background context on where we currently are with the negotiations. So On November 6th, SAG-AFTRA released a statement on X, formerly known as Twitter, saying that they had responded to the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, quote, last, best, and final offer, end quote. Negotiations over this offer once more dissolved, in part because of what you mentioned about the studio's proposal to reuse artificial intelligence scans of potential deceased performers and actors' likeness without their estate or the guild's consent. Uh, and the guilds cite that their determination to secure a deal to protect actors' likeness. Um, so you already touched upon this a little bit, but I just want to go a little bit further about for you and your the current projects that you're working on, Stefano, how do you foresee that these movies and these projects being impacted by the ongoing negotiations and a potential deal that Zac might be able to achieve?
3: For me, I've seen the impact. Uh, I've seen the impact of... How quickly it can work on the post-production side, just on a coloring perspective, also from a perspective of, well, let me share some a personal story with you. I, I was slated to be a television director for um, a television show basically of a set of jurors who are human, uh, a host, and a generative AI uh, who who basically makes decisions uh low grade under ten thousand dollars criminal decisions um, between a defendant and a plaintiff through ai and i went through this whole process i must have been on this project for i don't know five months but i ended up um we ended up breaking apart for creative differences on one hand, I was drawn to it because it was—I uh, was honored to be asked—and we were on the forefront of technology. So, hey, who does not want to enter into the next phase of technology? It's—it's um, it's always been to the detriment of people who are the late comers to adopt technology quite late. But just like the line of Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Uh, who tells him, you stood on the shoulders of giants, of humans, and you had a piece of of technology which had no ethical responsibility. You had no knowledge or appreciation of how long it took you to get it. That's the problem. The people who are making art and making movies, it took them, let's say, 10,000 hours of experience to create this product and had to ethically figure out how to source this material. The problem with generative AI aside from the copyright issues is that it's not clear what the ethics are. We haven't built in ethics into what it can or cannot do. We're just still in the phase like, wow, Look at how amazing this acid experience is. Let's see how incredible this is. That's the wrong questions we're asking. We should be asking what it's permissible to do before we let the genie out because we realize that this thing is working at a very rapid case i mean for me i can even see just in color corrections how quickly it can go through an entire scan of a film and tell me what the color temperatures are of the film and also tell me what the lighting sequences are now for me i have found it to be wrong a lot of times and sometimes when it's wrong it's way off but when it gets it right you're actually amazed that it took someone I don't know let's say uh, fifty hours to color a scene and you realize, oh wow, this is going to eliminate jobs in its beta testing um, if it's not if it's not regulated and that's just one aspect of some obscure part of filmmaking which is which is color correction so you know we need to ask these ethical questions of. What, it's, what, what do we believe as a society is permissible and in the field of art, um, you know, yeah, you can write a story, you can learn on stories of other people, but you never had to experience the poetry of Keats and Shelley and Oscar Wilde and uh, Lennon McCartney of losing a child or losing a girlfriend or losing a boyfriend to be able to inspire the writing that you're doing it's it's it, it, in a sense it's 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 not um it, it's going to be a very big topic for us you know what is human driven art what is technology and machine driven art and this is this is the forefront of what is going to be in the art world for us right now in the next 10 years and this this is irrespective of employment irrespective of what deals get found these are the philosophical questions why we need good philosophers in the room to ask these questions because policy is going to make or break how it's used and what we as a society agree is permissible or not permissible yeah i i
1: definitely agree i think also you know for us law students or people working in the legal space is also a very interesting question to see exactly what level of permissibility we can grant to ai like you said you know it needs boundaries it needs certain defined limits to what it should or should not be able to do um, so i'm also curious right from your perspective as an actor, what would you like to see accomplished concerning generative AI right now through the SAG-AFTRA deal? I I know, like you said, it's going to be a process. And this is just step one in a very long battle with or maybe not battle, but sort of a long toggle with this new technology. But just within the context of the current deal, what would you ideally like to see accomplished?
3: Yeah, Terry, it's a very good question, because at the heart of your question uh, on this podcast is... Where is the place for AI, right? What is the boundary and the sandbox in which it should exist? Um, and the answer, the answer is that it's a useful tool, but it can never be your master. So it's, it's, it should never be able to replace or substitute for actors' faces and likeness. I think it should have a place in terms of the same way that CGI is used, right? We, we know that robots and, and explosions um, in the post-production world are handled through graphic effects. I think it's completely uh, morally permissible and very reasonable to sustain itself within the realm of how we look at uh uh, special effects it should be it should stay in the world of a special effect the the operative word meaning special and effect right but when it starts entering as a substitute you we know that we we inherently I guess not everyone knows they don't, you know, depends on, on what your moralistic stance is on this, but when it becomes a substitute, um, then we know it's, it's not, it's not right. It's not the way that was intended, you know, and and I, I think that the right way is to be used as a proper assistant, but it should not, uh, substitute for what is incredible about being human. We are human beings and there's a level of value from the experiences that we live in our shared community, even the three of us right here talking together that is, uh, that is, is unique to being human. And that sacredness should stay in art form um, and, and should, should be the main part. So I love it as an assistant but not as a master.
1: For sure. And uh, so this might be a bit of a personal question, so feel free to disregard this uh, if you feel uncomfortable answering. But do you feel like the union so far has represented your interest and the interests of similarly situated talents well throughout the negotiation process? Is there anything you would like to see that they do differently?
3: You know, I think that the union has done a very, very good job of – of understanding that this is this is a battle of, of ten years. In other words, this is not a problem that we're gonna have in 2024. Or, you know, it's not gonna be a problem of 2024, 2025. It's gonna be a problem of 2030 and 2035 when this contract has already been signed and done poorly that we're gonna have to face. So from that aspect, I believe that we have um, that they've represented us well. What they haven't done well is explain to regular ye olde people and regular layman actors that streaming services are losing money. And people, most people don't understand that, but I'll I'll just give you a very simple metaphor. When you started to join Netflix and you were paying $200 or $180 a year for cable and all of a sudden someone said here's a 10 dollars subscription with no ads to be able to watch as much content as possible in the back of your mind if you didn't know something was wrong you're asleep at the wheel essentially netflix created a business model that lied to the public lied to wall street was losing billions and billions of dollars and the industry who were our parents and our employers rather than telling the public this is an unsustainable model just like pollution just like issues with climate change rather than saying to the public listen we need advertising dollars from Kellogg's, from Procter & Gamble, from shampoo companies, from Mazda, from Ford and General Motors, because that subsidizes, it's a very uh, a clean business model that helps actors get paid for their residuals, rather than them being intelligent, what did they do? Disney went forward to buy 20th Century Fox and started to fight the streaming wars and everyone followed Netflix's path and that path unfortunately is is going to end nowhere it, there's no world that we're going to live in where it's sustainable for any one of us to consume endless amounts of content without advertising because that advertising money ends up trickling down to the residuals that actors make, and you—it's not enough to be making it from the subscription unless your subscriptions go back up to then 180 to 200 dollars, which we end up going to a reverse cycle of what we were doing in the 90s and early 2000s anyway, when we were paying for a cable bundle, uh, you know, for 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 you know hundreds of dollars a year, which is what most of us had growing up so i really want your your listeners to understand this this is the this is the issue and the union sag-aftra could do a better job of explaining this nuanced problem it's not like the studios have zero reason to not accept the strike it's it's that they're being squeezed too and and you say, Stefano, well, how come you're so balanced and, and centrist? You sound like someone who's so anti-AI. Yeah, I am. I, I I am I definitely am for asking the right questions. But you can also understand from a from a a, a a corporate, you know, I'm a capitalist as well. You know, we live in a capitalist country and I'm I'm for the belief of of, of a sustained capitalism, right? That's a healthy business model. Look at the price of Disney stock it's trading at $84 it's at a 5 year low nobody in that company no shareholders no endowment funds have made any money on the stock so the point is is it's because it's losing money it's not its parks division that's that's having problems and you can look with any company by the way you can look at paramount global you can look at discover um it, they're all having problems you know t which owns hbo is a, is a, is hasn't made money in the last 10 years so the 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 point is we're we're chasing we're chasing our own tails without being honest to the public of the fact that we need a sustainable business model
1: yeah and i think just quickly bringing it back to generative ai i just kind of want to get your thoughts about is there any possible area you might think that generative ai might create more opportunities you know or even even to mitigate the sort of many industries that it's tearing down and destroying is there any sort of benefits it could potentially pose for actors or people in the industry?
3: No, 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 not, not I mean for post production uh, ultimately uh, let's let's reverse that question and think about the transformation from film to digital cinema. Right? So what did what did we gain? Well, we got efficiencies. We saved money. We didn't burn through our film. We didn't burn through exposure. We didn't have to worry about exposures. To sun right, you had your canister, and you were shooting on a Bolex. You had to check the gate, make sure there were no hairs in the gate. The process of filmmaking is much quicker for me than it was um, for for ol- an older generation, even even in in Generation X. Uh, so the barrier, the, let's say the benefits, if we're fair, the barrier to entry in filmmaking will be very low, very low to produce content. And some people think that that's good. Um, I don't. We have too much content. There's too much material already on TikTok. There's too much on your Instagram reels. There's already too many people having the access this it's not an issue of of of, of area uh, areas of, of of a barrier to entry. So the the position that one would take who is who is looking at this objectively would say, listen, Stefano, you're, you're, you're not being fair, because this will create and allow people to have more tools to create. Yes, but at, at what cost, you can still do many of the things all, all it's doing right now is not something brand new. It's not creating something brand new. It's substituting the processes to get what we already have. We already have writing. We already have spectacular images. We already have great photography, great colorists, great CGI. What we're trying to do with generative AI is to use it as a a tool that will be able to uh, get there quicker and be more efficient. I will say one positive thing though. So so, uh, here's who it'll employ. To go back to your first question, who's it gonna employ? It's gonna not employ us, in the arts. It's gonna employ software engineers, computer engineers, computer scientists. Nobody who is in the relationship of my community that I that, that I, I work with and that I know. And the closest that I come to a computer engineer would be, you know, a colorist or someone who does very technical things of of special skills of of doing post production effects.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely a, a good point. Um I think since you also mentioned that AI is sort of better or perhaps only been like positively used as a tool so do you personally anticipate that you'll have to use some of some form of generative AI in your own work
3: Yes of course of course of course I I'm not a hypocrite of course of course I think that I think that um uh look I I use a manual colorist for for as long as I've been a director um, to, to, to color correct my films. Um, however, the question is, what happens if that person's not available and then the technology gets so good that I'm able to do it, you know, with basically I'm able to do it with myself and and use this tool and use generative AI to help Further along, um, I I I I think that all filmmakers are in a situation where they don't want to be left behind, and they want to know the tools so that they're able to employ them in an ethical manner. But I don't think the answer is not knowing, is is not being engaged in what is going on and, and what the tools can do. Right? Whether it's writing, uh, whether it's it's having it respond back to you in in, in scripts and or whether it's um, doing all sorts of work in post-production. For me, it's something I have not used compared to a human. I've, I, I, sorry, I've used it. It's not been to the quality of work that I believe is true art. Um, so it's not been a tool that I've used. Uh, sorry, presented to a client, but it has been a tool that I have used and experimented with since, uh, since May of 2023 in terms of of everything, images, writing, uh, graphics, everything.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, And so I think given all that we've said about the changing landscape and and how much of a sort of different perspective that AI must present for every actor, what advice would you give to up-and-coming actors and directors about how to coexist with AI and how this might affect their careers going forward? Well, I would say to actors
3: who are, I would say to actors, if you're going to be an actor, stay an actor. Don't stop being an actor because of the fear of AI. There are always great reasons, uh, great walls of worry that we have to climb. Uh, you know, whether it was the depression, whether it was the loss of film onto digital, there are always existential issues that come up. This one, granted, I think is is unprecedented. Uh, but the advice I would say is to get involved with your community organizers and to unionize, stay join the union, become part of the union. Uh, there are resources for the Directors Guild of America, the DGA. You can go on dga.org and you can also visit resources for sag-aftra.org. Become a member of the union Um if you're an actor on theater, become join equity, uh, join the union so that you can be part of a brotherhood, a sisterhood of fellow working professionals who are uh, having this dialogue and uh, you're not worrying about this alone. So make sure that you follow what you want to do as an artist and never, never feel alone. Join the unions.
1: That's great. Um and so for a final question, just to sort of end on a lighter note, if you had to choose, what movies would you say uh inspired you and your desire to speak up and the issues that you care about and that you talk about?
3: I think that um I think that my, I think the, the films that inspire me the most, the, the director that inspires me the most is is David Fincher, who um has very dark tones in his in his films and you know dark characters dark themes uh, the social network um fight club zodiac uh the killer um i think those him as a director is a a perfect example of of talking about special effects it's not it's the difference between michael bay using transformer special effects which you look at and you yawn you, you you just it's just one big blast after another to using special effects properly in a david fincher film you don't know whether a camera is manually operated or, um, or camera or basically digitally operated or operated by a person or whether it's, it's done in the edits. And I think the idea is that you, you create a certain, you use everything, you use all those tools to create, uh, with an overall theme of how to create a piece of art, right? There's a, there's a, there's a through line through all of it. So David Fincher was, is hundred percent, my favorite filmmaker, uh, who uses special effects and, and, and got his start, doing special effects through return of the Jedi on the star Wars films and, and uses it more to hide things, hide problems rather than it being the focal point of, of the film. Um, and in terms of, of being, you know, in in terms of being outspoken, uh, you know, I think I, I think the reason I've, I'm outspoken, I grew up in a big Italian family, and so uh, you had no choice. If you, if you if you didn't speak up, uh, you didn't get any. You you, you didn't. Um if you didn't have an opinion, you didn't get anything for dinner, and uh, nobody knew that uh, you you had a, you know you had to have an opinion on something. So that's that's where it comes from from my family. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's all the time we have,
1: unfortunately. But thank you so much, Stefano, for taking the time to speak with us. I'm sure our listeners will greatly appreciate your candidness and your insight. So thank you again.
3: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to join you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. The BTLJ Podcast is brought to you by Gayatri Sindhu, Liang Chu Wu, Terry Zhao and podcast editors Eric Ehan, Juliet Draper and Meg O'Neill. Our executive producer is BTLJ Senior Online Content Editor Linda Chang. BTLJ's editors-in-chief are Will Casper and Yuhan Wu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please support us by subscribing and rating us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to us at btljpodcast at gmail.com. The interview with Dan Jasno was recorded on November 20, 2023, and the interview with Stefano De Frey was recorded on November 6, 2023. The information presented here does not constitute legal advice. This podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only.